Well, good morning. I invite you to open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. This morning we'll continue our exposition of chapter 3 of Galatians. A few weeks ago I did Galatians 1 through 14. If you didn't hear that, you're welcome to look us up on the YouTube feed and to review that. And for the sake of context this morning, we'll really read all of Galatians 3, but then we'll concentrate on 15 through 29. Reading in Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he then, who provides you with the Spirit and works, miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations shall be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident. For the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed should come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up all men under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ 
might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So let us pray. Father, pray that you would bless this, your, your word this morning. Pray that you would speak to each one here and impart that unto us. Pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in this and that I would handle this text appropriately. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. So the title of the message is Jesus Christ, the Mediator of the New Covenant. Verse 15 begins with, Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations. Even though um, it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So another word for covenant is testament. And when you hear the word testament, uh, think last will and testament, because that's exactly what's in view here. While someone lives, they have full control over what shall be done with their possessions. And often people will write down um, how they want their possessions distributed after their death. And as mortal men, we may adjust our wills uh, due to new information that we receive. And uh, the Lord doesn't do that. He has made his plans from all eternity past until present and into the future. But anyhow, the document that details the information on how to distribute a mortal men's possessions is commonly called someone's last will and testament. Throughout history, there have been cases of people who were previously written into a will and then were removed for one reason or another. And that's the right and privilege of the one to whom the will belongs. Yet once that person dies, their last will and testament should be in force in just the way that they left it. Now, setting aside for a moment our litigious society in which we live uh, that tends to dispute a will upon the death of a loved one, (coughs) the general idea is that no one is supposed to be able to change the will um, of an individual or else or add conditions to it after that individual has passed. So we read in Hebrews 9, verse 16 through 17, that where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never enforced while the one who made it lives. So then the will is created previous to the death of the one who makes it. And it becomes in force after the death of the one who makes it. Martin Luther said, God's last will was given to Abraham and his seed after him. And when Christ died, it was confirmed in him. And after his death, the writing of his last testament was opened. That is to say, the promised blessing of Abraham was preached among all nations throughout the world. This was God's last will and testament, confirmed by the death of Christ. Therefore, no one ought to change it or to add anything to it 
as is done by people who teach the law and human traditions. So that's what we're told in Galatians 3.15. We serve a God of covenants. The other thing to keep in mind regarding covenants um, in the sense of the last will and testament is that inheritance is given solely as a gift with no works or no earning of it required in any way. Uh, In verse 16, the Holy Spirit through Paul tells us of the covenant that God made with Abraham. God gave Abraham several promises. And while his name was still Abram, God promised him in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on in Genesis 17, God elaborates on his earlier promises. He also changes Abram's name to Abraham and institutes the sign of circumcision. So if you would turn to Genesis 17, we'll read verses 1 through 14. Now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. And I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I will make you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come forth from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. And I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people He has broken my covenant. Then again in Genesis 22, Abraham had followed God's demand to sacrifice Isaac 
only to be stopped at the last minute by the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord, in many translations, is capitalized, which many believe is a pre-incarnation of Christ. God's promises came to him again. And we read verse, starting in verse 16. And said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In returning to Galatians 3.16, we read, or Paul makes the case that these promises were made to Abraham and to his seed. It does not say unto seeds as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. That's true that in the previous promises that we read from Genesis, uh, every instance of the word seed in those passages is presented uh, in the singular form. In fact, every instance of the word descendants Though we see it plural in English, uh, in the Hebrew, it's, it's singular. So what's going on here is that Abraham was given a covenant with two different natures. We see uh, they weren't separate covenants, but they were rather one covenant with two facets. And the two facets are a physical side and a spiritual side. Now this is further expanded when we get to chapter 4 of Galatians. But for now, I wanted to offer this chart. Um, it was taken from the kingdom of God by Jeffrey Johnson. So there's two dimensions to the Abrahamic covenant. There's a natural dimension and then a spiritual, uh, supernatural dimension. And under the heading of natural, you see that the covenant was temporal. It was a type or foreshadowing of the supernatural covenant. It was bilateral, meaning that the covenant was dependent upon God and man, with both sides fulfilling their part of the covenant. God's blessings, and Abraham's obedience to circumcision. It was also conditional, meaning that if either side failed to keep the covenant, then the covenant would become null and void. And just as we would expect to happen, a man was unable to keep his part of this natural covenant. And so we no longer see an earthly kingdom of Israel ruled by a physical descendant of David. But on the other hand, the supernatural dimension of the Abraham covenant is eternal. It is the antitype, or that which the natural pointed to. It's unilateral, meaning that God alone fulfilled all the requirements of this covenant. And it was not dependent upon the works of sinful man. Therefore, it was not conditional. And God will accomplish all that he purposes to do. And though we saw singular references to seed in the promises given to Abraham, you will remember that Abraham did indeed have two sons. They were Ishmael and Isaac. Again, chapter 4 elaborates on this further, and we'll see that when we get to, to that chapter. And it's not my purpose to preach chapter 4 this morning, but simply the, the covenant that Galatians refers to is, is the Abrahamic covenant in a spiritual sense. The physical facet of the Abrahamic covenant dealt with physical Israel, and Abraham's descendants after the flesh. The promised land was Canaan. The kingdom included the royal line of David. The kingdom was the physical nation of Israel. It was a covenant of works that depended upon the obedience of man in the covenant for the blessings to continue. On the other hand, the spiritual kingdom is supernatural, and the promised land is heaven. 
The members of this new covenant are the spiritual seed of Abraham, which is Christ. And through the one seed of Christ, many believers are brought into this spiritual kingdom. The promises are to Christ and his church. Now, when, while the Abrahamic covenant had two dimensions to it, we see as history progresses that these two sides of the Abrahamic covenant have become two separate covenants with separate goals in mind. 430 years after Abraham, God would give the law to Moses on Mount Sinai. The children of Israel received this law while they're in the wilderness on their way to the physical promised land. There were many works commanded and required of the children of Israel. The law was not corrupt, quite the contrary. We read from Psalm 19, 7 and 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the law are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. In 1 Timothy 1, 8 also tells us, but we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. So in our study of Galatians 3 this morning, I don't want us to walk away thinking that the law is any way sinful or, or bad. In fact, this law is perfect. And that perfectness of the law is what made it unable for us to fulfill. The Galatians were not using the law lawfully. That's apparent from Paul's reaction, if for no other reason. But it's not enough simply to know that the Galatians were not using it for lawfully. We must ask ourselves, how is the law to be used lawfully as Christian believers operating under the new covenant? The law is generally divided into three parts. These are the ceremonial law, the civil law, and the moral law. Under the Mosaic Covenant, all of this law had to be kept. And yet, remember this fact, for we will return to it later, that no one could be saved under the Mosaic Covenant. In any case, however, all three facets of the law had to be kept under the Mosaic Covenant. The ceremonial aspect of the law dealt with types and shadows pointing to Christ. Probably the biggest ceremonial law was the law requiring animal sacrifices for sin. God required blood in the death of the animal for the atonement of sin. And yet we're told in Hebrews 10.4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So even though this was required, um, it was, it was impossible for it to remove the sins, but it was required. And why was that required? Because it was a type and shadow of Christ. In fact, if we were to think that the blood of bulls and goats uh, could not take away sins, um, are we to think that if, if they couldn't take away sins, were there no true believers living under the, new co- I mean, the old covenant? Well, not at all. We're given example after example of godly men uh, who lived under the old covenant. So how then were they saved? We don't have two different ways of salvation. There is one eternal way of salvation. They were saved the same way that we are saved, by the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, living before the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, they were saved by looking at the types and shadows and placing their faith in the promised Messiah who was to come. Another example of the ceremonial law was the law of circumcision. Circumcision represented a cutting away of the flesh. It was a setting apart of the people of God 
so that they would be different than the world. And again, it was a type and shadow as well. Consider what Paul wrote in Romans 2, 28-29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And his praise is not from men, but from God. The next aspect of the law I want to mention is that of the civil law. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the civil law because it's really outside the scope of what we're looking at today. But essentially, the civil law speaks as to how the state government should operate. And there are many ways that the laws of our own land mirror Old Testament and Old Covenant civil laws. And there are many ways that they don't. Uh, But that's another whole discussion. Here's just one example on... It's called the the lex telionis. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So basically, let the the punishment fit the crime. And um, we see that within any of our our good laws that we have. The third and final aspect of God's law is the moral law. The catechism question asks us, wherein is the moral law summarily comprehended? The answer given is the moral law is summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments can be divided into two tables. The first table of the law describes our duty to God. And this would be commandments one through four. The second table of the law describes our duty to our neighbor. This would be commandments 5 through 10. Jesus pointed this out to us in Matthew 25, I'm sorry, Matthew 22, verses 35 through 40, which reads, one of them, one of them a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. The facet of the covenant made with Abraham that applies to Christian believers is the spiritual side of the Abrahamic covenant. There was absolutely no reason for these Gentile Christian believers uh, to turn to the other facet of Abraham's covenant, which led to the covenant of works that God made with Moses on Mount Sinai. And neither is there any reason for us to do the same. Verse 17 of Galatians 3. I'll read that once again. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. So, verse 17 points out that the law would not come for another 430 years and that it would not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. Rather, Christians enjoy the spiritual promises made to Abraham that in his seed all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And according to verse 18, If the inheritance is based on law, then it's no longer based on promise. This is reiterated in Romans 4, 14. 
For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. And believe me, it's much better that our inheritance be given based on promise rather than by the law. I want to ask you, how many of you have children and have heard them complain, that's not fair? And it's usually in response to something that their brother or sister was either getting some gift or opportunity that the complaining child didn't get. And the passage provides the perfect response to that child and allows us a teaching opportunity to share the gospel with them. Fair means that every last one of us burns in hell for all eternity. For that's what every one of us truly deserves. Nothing that we have been given was given because we deserved it. The only thing that we deserve is judgment. And yet, through God's mercy, we, through Abraham's seed, that is Christ, have a glorious inheritance that we've received by a means of a promise. And that very fact should cause each of us to fall on our face and give glory to our risen king. If the covenant given through promise is so great, and it is, why do we even need the law? Why didn't God just give us the covenant with promise and never create the law to begin with? Well, verse 19 answers that question. It reads, Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. After Adam's sin in the garden, we needed the law. In the absence of sin, we don't need the law. When we are with the Lord, we will have no use for the law. So think of the Ten Commandments that we saw earlier. Number one, you shall have no other gods before me. Certainly in heaven, God's elect people will not be tempted to serve any other God. The fallen angels did that at one point when they were in heaven, but the Lord Jesus did not shed his blood for them. Number two, you shall not make for yourself a graven image. All the excuses that man currently uses for making images or pictures of God will be completely removed as we will see God face to face and we will worship him directly without the temptation to make him in our own image. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Throughout eternity, we will sing praises and give glory to the one true God. And no one will be tempted to profane the name of God. Uh, Such a thought will never enter our mind. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And not being given clear instruction in God's word as to how time is arranged in heaven, we're not told if one day will be set above another when we're there. But one thing is for certain, in our glorified bodies, we will have no desire to do our own will above that which God has commanded. Number five, honor your father and mother. We won't have mothers in heaven. We'll have one father, and honoring him will not be burdensome at all. Our our earthly mothers and fathers will be our sisters and brothers. And even at that, there'll be no heavenly sibling rivalry there. Number six, you shall not kill. When we are with the Lord, we'll be enjoying the fullness of eternal life. It would be impossible to bring about death if we wanted to, and we will by no means have that desire. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. In heaven, the church will be mar- in heaven, we the church will be married to our perfect husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God's people in the Old Testament were said to have committed harlotry against him time and time again. And it's certainly apparent that the visible church today does that in many ways. 
In heaven, that will be a thing of the past. God's true people are forgiven of their spiritual adultery, and God's enemies within the visible church will receive their due judgment. And we will truly be experiencing the joy of true marital bliss with our bridegroom, the Lord Jesus Christ, for all eternity. Eight, you shall not steal. This will not be a temptation in heaven. Romans 8.32 tells us, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? There will be no evil in our heart to take what does not belong to us. And even then, all things will have been given to us already. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Revelation twenty-two fifteen tells us what is not in heaven. Outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. And number 10, you shall not covet. For the similar reasons that we will not steal, neither shall we covet. This sinful desire will have been removed and there'd be nothing left that we would desire anyways other than Christ himself. So then the law was given because of our current state of sin. And yet as Christian believers, we still rely upon God's promises above and beyond the law. How then do we make use of the law? John Calvin pointed out three uses of the law of God. And summarized quickly here, it's number one is to show us our need of our Savior. Number two, to give, us, to give a blueprint to civil government on how they are to govern. And then number three, to show Christians how we should live. So first and foremost, to show us our need of a Savior. Throughout the history of mankind, ever since the fall of man in the Garden of Eden, man has been a sinful creature. The law is holy and perfect. Man is wicked and sinful. The law makes demands upon man, and it demands perfect obedience. Every covenant that God has made has demanded perfect obedience, and this is even true for the covenant of grace. So that's right, the covenant of grace, under that we are saved by works. Now that shouldn't shock you, because the difference here is that the works that save us are not our own works, but rather we are justified by Christ's finished work. He fulfilled all the demands of the law. All the Ten Commandments that we just covered were fulfilled in Christ. So then, we see the primary purpose of the law. It shows us our need of a Savior to keep the law on our behalf. And if not for Christ, we have no hope. There is no mere man that can keep, obey the law of God perfectly, and yet it has to be a man who fulfills that requirement. The Lord Jesus is 100% God and 100% man, and in his godly perfection, he alone was able to keep God's law perfectly. And in his humanity, he was tempted like we all are tempted, and yet resisted the attacks of the devil. Luther said, when the law oppresses you so that everything seems utterly desperate and thus drives you to Christ for help, then the law is performing its true function. This is the best and most perfect use of the law. Secondly, the law of God gives us a blueprint on how our civil government ought to rule. Israel was a theocracy, so there are some specifics that do not carry over into our modern nation states. However, there are general principles that apply. The sixth commandment of thou shalt not kill is the reason why um, it's wrong to murder. 
and why the state has authority from God to punish murderers. Everybody in our country would seem to agree that murder is wrong, but yet we don't agree on why it's wrong. As believers, we know that it is wrong because God's law says it's wrong. The same commandment, the sixth commandment, can also is the reason we have traffic laws. The next time that you're caught in a red light and heavy traffic, you can comfort yourself that what you're witnessing is the government's effort to preserve life, according to the sixth commandment, by preventing cars from speeding through intersections and running over anyone in their way. Finally, the last use of the law is to show Christians how we ought to live. And though we are not saved according to how well we keep the law, as believers, we show the fruit of the Spirit by loving our neighbor in our keeping of God's moral law. Without the law, we would not know how to love our neighbor rightly. Consider Romans 7, 7. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known anything about coveting if the law had not said, you shall not covet. So then, we are to obey the Ten Commandments, not in order to earn our salvation, but rather because that is what God has commanded for His own glory and for our good. And when we fail to keep His commandments, which we do constantly, He is there, ready and willing to forgive us when we repent. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. That's Galatians 3, 21 through 22. So Paul is instructing the Galatians here in that both the law and the promises have their purposes. These purposes are not at odds with one another, but rather law and promise work together to bring about God's will for his people. The law was never able to impart life. God had no intention in giving righteousness based on any sinful human's keeping of the law. The promise by faith in Jesus Christ was not a plan B when God's first attempt failed. By no means. Like we read in verse 17, the promises were given 430 years before the law ever came. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Now, when we get to chapter 4, the scripture will further expound on this idea. But essentially, the law was given for our, our instruction as a people until Christ came. That's the reason for all the types and shadows in the scriptures. It points to Christ. I find it interesting to... Uh, um, yeah, I find it interesting to read the word custody in verse 23. There are two uses of that word that come to my mind when I hear the word custody. Uh, first, I think of when the police apprehend a subject. Um, that suspect is in custody. That is, the police have taken him, and at least in a temporary arrangement, have taken away his freedom. They are controlling him. And another use of the word custody that comes to mind is that of a divorced couple who are fighting for custody of their children. In this case, the argument is over who gets to be the primary authority over that child. The law is like that. 
Uh, in the first example, it's good that police are able to take criminals into custody. Uh, the civil authority protects the public by removing the danger from off our streets. God's law kept us in custody until Christ was revealed. Then when you imagine the conflict over two divorced parents finding to control their children, I imagine the law being that parent from whom custody was removed and custody was granted under Christ. So brothers and sisters, keep that as your focus. Keep your gaze upon Christ. Look not for your salvation in the law. Rather, seek it from Christ alone. We are justified by faith, and faith always has an object. That object is Christ. Verse 25 tells us that that now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. Uh, Galatians 5.1 tells us that it was for freedom that Christ set us free. And as free people, we are all sons of God, according to verse 26. Now, I wanted to point out the word sons here that's used is important. In Jewish society, sons were the ones who received an inheritance. And there were a couple of exceptions made. But when you read of those exceptions in the scriptures, they stand out because they were the exception rather than the rule. Uh, in this context, it doesn't matter if you're male or female, as we'll see when we get to verse 28. But the scripture is declaring that we are all sons of God, um, whether male or female, and that we are all heirs of that inheritance. We're all eligible to receive it. Uh, I was curious as to which translations use the word sons in this verse. And all of these translations use the word sons. The NASB, the ESV, the KJV, New King James Version, the Net Bible, the NIV 84. And, uh, and in my looking, it wasn't until I opened up the newest NIV that I saw the word children substituted there. Uh, the, the New Living Translation also said children. Now, try an even worse paraphrase, the message, and it was, man- it was mangled beyond recognition here, so it didn't even seem to meet the flow. But I didn't check any of the others, but the general idea and the point here is that the Greek word is masculine uh, in its form, and there's a good reason for that, because sons are the receiving of the inheritance, and yet we are all eligible to receive that inheritance. So a few weeks ago, in my message on the first half of Galatians chapter 3, I shared with you the anti-Christian, anti-family, anarchist goals of the Black Lives Matter organization. And I made it clear that day, and I want to make it clear today, when we get to verses 27 and 28 in Galatians 3, that all of us, Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, male, female, black, white, we're all one in Christ Jesus. And in Christ, there is no racism. And anyone who tries to bring racism into Christianity does so by doing violence to the text. It's only through a twisting of Scripture that anyone can arrive at such a conclusion. And I did want to stop and, however, consider this verse for a few minutes. Verse 28 seems to be a favorite verse of theological liberals. We read, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So immediately, theological liberals like to point to this verse and say, look, there's no differences between men and women according to this verse. So there's nothing wrong with women pastors or women having authority over men in the context of the church. And this is a problem when someone 
that we encounter when someone takes scripture out of context. So what's the immediate context of verse 28? It's what we've been going through carefully today. The passage is simply saying that you're right to the inheritance promised through Christ, the singular seed of Abraham, is not dependent upon whether you are a Jew or a Gentile. It's not dependent upon whether you're a man or a woman. It's not dependent upon your station in life, your race, or anything physical. The the ground is level at the foot of the cross. That's why we are all sons, as we read in verse 26. It's also why we are all corporately the bride of Christ as his church. Whether as individuals, we are male or female. But none of this invalidates the other scriptures that clearly state the differences in roles between men and women within the context of the church. And while all of scripture is equally the word of God and, and is without error, I find it particularly amusing when liberals try to use this passage to argue against male leadership in the church because the earthly author of Galatians is the Apostle Paul himself. If you are going to accuse the Bible of contradicting itself, I would think that you would at least make sure that that accusation was not against the same human author. It was Paul, by the, and the, the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, who told us in 1 Corinthians 14, 34-35, The women are to keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but are to subject themselves, as just as the law also says. If they desire anything, to learn anything, let them ask their own husbands at home, for it is improper for a woman to speak in church. And it was Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 2, 12-14, But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. For it was Adam who was first created, and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. So it's said that there are three rules of sound biblical interpretation. Context, context, and context. And the context of verse 28 makes it clear that the differences between every one of us uh, do nothing to disqualify us from our inheritance of promise that we have in Christ. The verse that follows immediately is verse 29. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. That is what we need to keep in mind. And this is where the Galatians failed, and it's where we so often fail ourselves. Those of us who belong to Christ are heirs according to the promise of the new covenant. Our mediator is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And if he has, by his own works, fulfilled the covenant on our behalf, then why would anyone try, in futility, to earn these blessings themselves with their own supposed good works? So, brothers and sisters, I urge you to look to Christ alone, for he is our only way of salvation. Let's close. Father, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for Galatians chapter 3. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us our inheritance by promise and not by the keeping of the law. Nothing that we can do of our own brings us any favor or or changes our relationship with you in any way. For you have chosen us from the foundation of the world. We give you thanks for that. We pray that we would keep that in mind and that when we do the works of the law, that we do it as good to our neighbor, not to earn anything of our own. Thank you, Lord, for this lesson this morning. pray that you'd Bring it to our remembrance in the coming week. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.